0: My name is Willie and I am an alcoholic. I got up with my little book here at the Colorado State Convention and the chairs were down close like they are tonight and one little lady turned to the other one and she said oh my lord she's gonna read her talk. She didn't know that in this little book I have a piece of paper and it says your name is Willie and you are an alcoholic. you get up here and you're looking at that many eyeballs you're not quite sure what you are or who you are. I haven't found it absolutely necessary to have a drink of alcohol since June the 19th 1957 and for this dear God I am so grateful. I was not an instant winner. Instead of 28 years I should have 32. So if some of you people have come in and are not doing so pretty good settle back. You'll make it. You know, being an alcoholic nowadays is uh, sort of a status symbol, isn't it? (laughs) We sort of having to work every once in a while to keep out the social
1: climbers.
0: (laughs) People get all sobered up, and they and they run out. I mean, famous people too, real famous, important people. They run out and write books and everything about how they're cured. And that's okay. And you know, we're getting written about and talked about all over the place. You open up a a newspaper, a magazine, and Sunday supplement, and they're talking about us. And you turn on a talk show and they have some expert talking about us. Now The only thing that really sort of sends me off into orbit every once in a while is that they try to describe us. (laughs) And they say, an alcoholic is. Now, do you ever see anything that an alcoholic
1: is?
0: (laughs) The only thing consistent, I believe, about an alcoholic is his inconsistency. You know, you take an old drunk, he'll walk by your house every morning, every morning, at 8 o'clock for six years and one morning you decide well shoot I'm going to go out and speak to him hell he won't come
1: <laughs>
0: but some of these articles and some of these experts that are talking about us and studying us seem to want to take us and, and stick us into these little egg cartons into the holes in egg carton and they want us to fit there and sure enough, we won't fit. And we got a whole bunch of folks here tonight from all over. And we share two things, basically. We share pain, and we share the loss of control of our lives. And after you've said that, you've about said it all. Because we're, we're different. We do have uniqueness, and I hear this sometime. You know, there's nothing unique But the thing of it is, is that we have to stick around a while to find out what we're talking about. And we do differ. We all come from different backgrounds, social backgrounds, economic backgrounds, educational backgrounds, religious backgrounds. And we won't stick in these holes. And we won't stick with some of the definitions that they want us to fall under. We're all different, individual, and I love to see this many people. I'm thrilled to death. Sometime when I get an audience like this, I sort of feel like a born loser. And you know what that is. This man that goes down on the seashore and he finds him a beautiful seashell, and he washes that sucker up and he gets it all nice and clean and he holds it up to his ear and he gets a busy signal. <laughs> but the thing of it is we've got a lot of winners in this room tonight. And we got a lot of people that are going to be winners. Feel it, feel it. But sometime when they're studying us, I'm really amazed at what they come up with. I don't, I'm glad that that alcoholism and alcoholic is no longer a dirty word the way it was. It it really isn't as cleaned up as they think they're making it, but uh, to the outside world. But I'm glad that it's a little more acceptable. But you know, some of these people have lists of questions that they want us to answer. They don't take into a card how different we are as individuals and as human beings. And they have questions for us to answer when we first come in, you know. Especially nowadays as I travel around and people will take me to their facilities that they have there in nearby town. And I tour their facilities and look around and and they'll show me some of the things that they do when they bring in a brand new alcoholic. And they always show me their questions. And I always get such a big kick out of it. Of course, I don't say anything to them because these are mostly lay people. and I don't say anything to them, but I I always laugh to myself and I know they think I'm sort of part silly, maybe for my alcoholism. But I don't tell them what I'm laughing about, but really I'm laughing about a set of questions that a fellow down in Texas named Wino Joe, and there's a whole bunch of people here that know Wino, and he made up a set of questions that alcoholics, real alcoholics can understand. Now one of Wino's questions is, have you ever had the roof of your mouth (laughs) sunburned?
1: Have you ever been arrested
0: while in jail? Have you ever been run over by your own car while driving it? (laughs) Now see, most of y'all understood those questions real good. (laughs) But with their questions that they have, they forget about the difference in us. Now to start off very cautiously tonight, I want to tell you men out there, I love you all. And by George, you loved me sober because there wasn't very many women around when I came in. And I love you, but I'm talking to the woman alcoholic tonight. She's the gal that I, because I never get someplace like this that I don't run into a couple of gals and that's all that's important is those couple of gals that still have that pain left in their eyes. Maybe they've been around for a while, but they're still hurting. And that's mainly who I'm talking to. And I want to share with you these things, honey, about Willie. And this is one of the reasons why we have, when we have a convention or a conference like this, and at meetings, listen to the people talk and, and listen to them as individuals. Look in their eyes and see the pain and the loss of control of their lives. But listen to them as individuals. I basically have two jobs up here tonight, and that's to tell you, hon, what alcohol did to me as a human being and what Alcoholics Anonymous has done for me as a human being. As the program said, I am from Spring, Texas. It is singular. It's not even plural, but I am from Spring, Texas, and it's a little German farming community 16 miles north of Houston. It was very, very small when I was growing up there. Houston started moving in on us but it was just a very, very tiny little German farming community. We were so small out there, we didn't even have our own village idiot. We all took turns. (laughs) But I want to tell you, hon, something about Willie's growing up. I grew up there in that little town, and about the most exciting thing that happened in Spring, Texas once a year was the church picnic. Now, when you said that, you've said it all. It was a little farming community. We were all kissing kin. Uh, we all worked the land. There was no deep trauma in my life. There wasn't any great frustration in my life. I grew up there. My mother didn't hate my father. My father didn't hate my mother. I didn't hate my brother. And he didn't hate me up there just happy as a clam now later on in life i tried to convince the psychologist that the reason i drank was because i had such a boring childhood but when the psychologist and i were looking back at this portion of my life and you know they always wanted to go back there we found absolutely nothing i never felt like that people didn't like me i didn't know i wasn't supposed to be liked and it was such a simple, basic type of life that I was leading. And I just grew up there. Graduated from high school, went off to college. Now I picked the largest all-girl school in the world to go to, and that was probably the first symptom that I can come up with. Up in Denton, Texas, And you know, I did, I got up there, and I think as we look back, we can find maybe some little signposts if we really want to dig around for these psychologists and these therapists and everything, if they want to go that far back. And I can see that when I got up there, I was with a bunch of girls from big cities like Dallas and Fort Worth, and they talked about doing so many things that we didn't do at the church picnic. (laughs) And Lord, it sounded like fun. Now maybe this is where my hallucinations of grandeur started, I don't know, but I graduated in 1944, and I went back to Houston, Texas, or Spring, Texas, and I told my good German Papa that I wanted to go to New York and be a model. Well, now Papa didn't know exactly what a model was, but he had just enough of an idea to say, no, that's not what you're going to do. There's a war going on, and your brothers all fighting the war, and you're going to go into Houston and do what you can for the war effort. Well, shoot, I knew a lot of things I could do for the war effort, <laughs> but it wasn't any of those things Papa had in mind either. He said, "No, you going into Houston and get you a job teaching school." And I thought, Lord have mercy, I never saw a school teacher in my life look like she had one minute fun.
1: not the ones I'd had back in Spring, Texas,
0: but this was 1944, and teenagers didn't argue with Papa in 1944, and I said, yes, sir, and went right on in, and I got me a job teaching school. Now, as the psychologist and I look back at this portion of my life, and of course, some of these articles, you know, tell us that. If the alcoholic had ever really gotten to do in life what he really wanted to do, if he'd ever had a a feeling of fulfillment, he wouldn't have taken to drink to give him this feeling of fulfillment. I hadn't been in that classroom six weeks till I knew this is the only way I ever wanted to make a living. And when I retired from the public schools a couple of years ago, I had spent 37 years with America's teenagers. Little lady down close one night said, "Lord, that's why she drank."
1: <laughs>
0: no, I loved everything about teaching. I loved those kids, and if you have a teenager, you hang in there with them; they're gonna be all right. So the problem, see, wasn't there, honey? I taught, and I loved everything about teaching. Now I don't know about you laws in Kentucky, but we we passed some funny laws in Texas our legislators sit around up there, and they pass funny laws just to have something to do. And after I had been teaching for four years, they passed a law that said if we, if teachers didn't have practice teaching, they wouldn't get a contract the following year. So after teaching for four years, I find me a college that offers practice teaching and go off and take practice teaching. And I had been working on my master's degree at the University of Houston. And I thought, well, I'll add a few more hours to my master's and get my practice teaching. And I didn't come home with a master's degree, did get to practice teaching, but I didn't come home with a master's, but I did come home with something else a lot more important. And that was my MRS degree. I met and married the man that I don't know, and neither are you after a while, but I'm still married to that dude. I know. I know there's some of you sitting out there at this point. Now, see, I've got me all grown, got me into a profession, I've gotten me married, and I know some of you are sitting there thinking, I wonder if she ever did any drinking, or if she stayed in one room and they squirted it to her through the keyhole. (laughs) No, this is where the plot thickens up a little bit. I met and married a United States Air Force officer, pilot. That, he took this little old gal out of Texas, took me into a, a life and a world that I had never, didn't even dream about, except when I'd watch that silver screen or, or flip open some of these magazines. Beautiful life. I thought I had died and gone to heaven. Now, up to this point in my life, alcohol was not a problem. Of course, you can't grow up in a German farming community without drinking homebrew. Can't do it. Ain't no way. Everybody there made good homebrew. The minister, German Lutheran, didn't get up on Sunday morning and preach against the evils of drink because he made good homebrew. And of course I had had it. And the only signpost that I can look back and really see is that I was never, ever a sipper. You hand me something liquid to drink, and good buddy, I'm going to drink it. And when this man got me up to where he was stationed at Scottfield, Illinois, right across the river from St. Louis, and introduced me to the first time to all these pretty little drinks, In these pretty glasses with these long stems, you know, and these little teeny, tiny, teeny, tiny, tiny bowls. With all that stuff in there, the olives and the onions and the orange peels, you know, and all that stuff. And they had such pretty names. Martinis. Manhattans. And, of course, being a school teacher, I was enamored with words. And I, oh, that martini, it just... Oh, Lord, it sounded more glamorous than home
1: <laughs>
0: It looked so much better than home But like I say, it was in those little bitty glasses, and me not being a sipper, down it went. The psychologist and I, you know, we looked back at this period and thought, uh-huh, here's where the trouble started. Because we were hunting, honey, just like maybe you're hunting. find out. I wasted so many years trying to find the answer to why. Why was I an alcoholic? A very wise man once told me one time in Alcoholics Anonymous, he said, Willie, you know, so many times the personality brings on the alcoholism. But in just as many cases, the alcoholism brings on the personality. We had ourselves a ball next couple of years now honey you're going to hear a lot of people from podiums and at meetings say that they never ever liked the taste of alcohol and they are telling you the truth this is the way we are different though this is why you need to listen to all of us that you hear but I like everything that man handed me I liked the taste of it, and I liked everything that went with drinking. I liked the cocktail lounges, I loved that officer's club, and I, I loved to go in those bars he took me in in St. Louis, you know, the, the smoke was so thick you could cut it with a knife and a little combo sitting over in the corner playing that music, and the people all dressed up and sitting on those bar stools. I liked everything about it, and we had ourselves a good time the next couple of years. They picked my man up and sent him to Korea. I went back to Spring, Texas. I got me a job teaching school. I lived with my mother and father. And for 18 months, I wrote my man every night. And as I would write my letters, I started out with drinking a couple of beers. This is back in the days of the glad, I've already dated myself, so I might as well go all the way. This was back in the days of the glass beer bottles, and that got sort of rattly to take them in and out, so I took me a half pint up there to write my letter to my man. And I know that some of these questions sometime include this one. Do you ever drink alone? Yes, this is where my lone drinking started. My husband is of the disposition that if I am in Spring, Texas, and he is in Korea, I better be drinking alone. I better be doing everything alone. (laughs) So yes, this is where my lone drinking started. Honey, if alcoholism descended on us like a thundercloud, if we just woke up one morning and we were, well, I'm now an alcoholic, it wouldn't be, as the big book says, such a cunning, baffling, and powerful thing. And think about those words, cunning and baffling. Because alcohol doesn't, alcoholism doesn't descend on us. This is a disease that is a very insidious, slow-creeping disease in many of our cases. Many people are alcoholic, and they, you believe them when they say that, because they are telling you the truth. But many of us develop this disease over a period of time. Dr. Silkworth tells us that this is an allergy. A lot of allergies do not manifest themselves until they have become exposed over and over and over again to a substance or to an outside pollen and all this sort of thing. I have had kids in school that I had And they would be allergic to orange juice. And they had always been allergic to orange juice. But I've had some that became allergic to orange juice over a given period of years. The very first time I ever took penicillin, I had a small rash on the back of my hands. The next time I took penicillin, I had a small rash all over my body. There had been a period of three or four years between those times. The next time they gave me penicillin, which was another five or six years, I quit breathing. My allergy to penicillin developed as the years went by. A lot of allergies are like this. A lot of diseases are like this. I've taught a lot of kids in school that were diabetic. My mother did not become a diabetic till she was 73 years old. So honey, when you read Dr. Silkworth's letter, you read it very, very carefully. This is a slow, insidious disease. And with some of us, it takes longer than others. When my man got back from Korea, we took up right where we left off with the partying and the going and the having a good time and the drinking. And right at first, we didn't notice a difference, but then he began to see a difference in Willie. See, the blackouts had already started, and when I'm not talking about long, protracted, three-day, four-day, week, two weeks that later happened to me. I'm talking about small portions of time, 15 minutes here, a telephone conversation that I didn't quite remember all of it. Parties that we would go to that I wouldn't remember little portions of them. I wouldn't remember talking to this person or that person. But see, I lived in a drinking world the way a lot of you young people are coming up now, in a drinking world. I mean, you can't turn on that television in your rooms. You can't turn on the television at home without seeing some beautiful commercial about drinking and how much fun it is and how if you want all the gusto out of life, get you a six pack. And shoot, now they're even putting out these six packs of wine. I don't know why they did all these things after I sobered up. But that powerful media is saying, come on, if you want all this gusto, we have it, and we have it here in this bottle. I lived in a drinking world. Service people, really, when you go to their houses, they don't offer you a glass of buttermilk. Usually pretty hard drinking people, and it's completely acceptable. And even the blackouts, I began to rationalize. See, the alcohol was bringing on the personality. I began to rationalize. I'd think, well, shoot, the next day at the BX when I would meet someone and they'd say, Lord, that was a good party last night, I think. How'd y'all get home? I don't remember getting home. Everybody was partying and having a beautiful time. And a small portion of not remembering wasn't that big a deal. But the blackouts brought on something within me because, see, I began to be a rationalizer. When the blackouts began to get worse, I began to be a beautiful excuse maker. And we learned to do this real, real good. We get get real expert at becoming the next step on that ladder of rationalizing and excuse making, and that's a liar. And I know that y'all, none of y'all, have ever walked around with questions to, answers to questions that you haven't even been asked yet. But maybe some of you have we began to be expert in the lying field. This had not been a part of my nature. I had never had anything to rationalize or to make excuses about or to lie about. My life had not been that complicated. It had been a good life. I was married to a man that I absolutely worshiped. I had the kind of life that I had always dreamed about and never thought I'd have. But the lying creates problems. And particularly because, hon, I had to start lying to myself as well as to other people. And this is what they refer to so many times, and in our book, calling the Dr. Jenkle and Mr. Hyde. I was a periodic, as most women are, not all, hon, but most. So I could go long periods of time if I had a particularly bad situation come up or not even have to be bad, but a little bit embarrassing I could very well leave that stuff alone for a long time. And then wham, when the time came along, my husband, I remember the bewilderment in this man's face when he would walk in, when I had been not having any drinks or controlling my drinking very well. And he would say, my God, what happened? All he had to do was take one look at me. The vodka never did do any good because he always said, I never have to smell you to know you've had too much. This began to cause trouble in this beautiful marriage that I had because no marriage can stand a bunch of lying. Things got a little bit rocky and we decided, okay, we start on a journey that many of you are gonna go along with me. There must be something wrong with Willie physically. So we hauled me off to the doctor. Now the doctor gave me all the exams he could possibly think of, up, down, sideways, and crossways got all of his results back called my husband in said she's healthy as a horse of course i was i was in my 20s i was a texan i was and we tough down in texas now y'all never have heard that but i'll just you know tell you we tough in texas and i was healthy and this hadn't beaten me too badly yet yet and he told my husband he said She is a little bit nervous. Maybe if she would have a glass of wine before dinner, she would put on some weight because she would eat better. And this would help the nervousness. Bless his living heart, he didn't say what size wine glass. The man had asked me about my drinking when they took the little history like all doctors do. Asked me about my drinking. And as he was talking to me, asked me about the smoking, came to the drinking. I said, I don't drink any more than anyone else does. And see the thing of it is, I was telling this man the truth. I was telling him the truth because I didn't know that the difference had already begun, that it was not the amount I was drinking, it was what it was doing to me as a human being, what it was turning me into. Because in this world and with these people that I lived among, I was not drinking any more than they did and I sure, well, now I pretty well could drink my husband under the table. He said that was one reason he married me, because I could drink more beer than he could. So I could hold a tremendous amount, but not when I measured it against regular service people. Things rocked along a little bit further. And we went to the other point in this journey. There's not anything wrong with Willie physically. There must be something wrong with Willie mentally. So that's when we hauled her off to the psychiatrist. Actually, he was a psychologist. Don't know really the difference between the two. He was a shrink man. And God bless him, he was the, I was the first woman alcoholic that he had ever dealt with. The poor man, was so confused. (laughs) Because see, he immediately went to that childhood and he immediately went to the marriage and my sex life and he immediately went into all of this, my unhappiness and my profession. And what's happening? Am I getting a message? (laughs) And he couldn't find any of these things and I could tell he was getting frustrated. So being the budding, practicing liar that I was, I made up a whole bunch of stuff about my mother and my father and how they treated me when I was little. Because that seemed to be what he wanted. Now you take any ordinary teenager and, and they can find out, you know, they can if you just probe long enough, they're gonna tell you all sorts of things wrong with mom and daddy. I mean that's just that's been going on for years and still going on always well. It's a perfectly normal thing to do. So being he wanted me to find things, I did like the teenagers. I picked out all sorts of things and when I'd really run out of that, I'd make up a bunch of stuff. And the only thing is, he was making notes. And he'd write down, you know, and the end of the hour, the session would come. And I'd go on home and he'd close up the file and I'd come back next week and he'd open up the file and he'd know where I was in the story, and I didn't. And it confused the man terribly. And after a period of time, he called my husband in. They always talking to him instead of me. And they called my, he called my husband in, and he said, asked one thing. He said, you sure this girl's a college graduate?
1: <laughs>
0: now see, it wasn't this man's fault. I had lied to him. And the lies didn't make any kind of semblance of sense. I was teaching, I was functioning, I was a functional alcoholic at that time. But not full bloom. You're going to hear the remark, honey, and, and it's just because we've passed it around to each other, and it's, I'm not knocking it at all, because it makes sense in a way. But you're going to hear, you know, that you can't be a little bit alcoholic any more than you can be a little bit pregnant. Well, let me tell you, and I think if you'll talk to these women in this crowd tonight, you're going to find out, or just go by your own experience, that you can be a little bit pregnant. Aren't you a lot more pregnant at nine months than you were at one? (laughs) All over, you're a lot more pregnant. And at that time, my alcoholism was beginning to grow. This allergy, this disease was taking hold of my body, which in turn was taking hold of my mind, my emotions, my very life, but it had started in my body first. I wanted, if you're quarreling, hon, with the insanity that we talk about in this program, don't just go by the insanity of the things that we do during a drunken spring. This is not the insanity we're talking about. It took me so long to realize that, that this is not what these men were telling me about insanity. Because at this period, I wanted that man to find something mentally wrong with me, just like I had wanted that doctor to find something physically wrong with me, that I could say, this is the the problem. This is why we're having trouble in this marriage. It never once occurred to us that it was alcohol. And I wanted this psychologist to find something wrong. I wanted him to give me a a label. As I told you, I'm enamored with words, you know, and I wanted him to, to tell me that I was schizophrenic, paranoid. Well, that sounds a lot better than drunk. And I really wanted him to find, to give me a label so that, shoot, you can talk to folks about being schizophrenic. Now, honey, I'm not knocking the real bona fide schizophrenics or paranoid people. But I wanted to be something I wasn't. I wanted him to give me a reason why my life was slowly, slowly falling apart. Not in great big chunks. Uh-uh. It's sort of like a brick wall. It was coming down one brick at a time. We rocked along for a while because our answer wasn't there. And the last point in this journey that we knew to go to at that time was, if there's not anything physical, mental, then there must be something wrong spiritually. I I thought this more than I, my husband never mentioned it, but I had been raised in this German Lutheran church. And when I went to this minister and talked to him, in the Lutheran church, we do as a lot of other religions do, we study for two long years and of catechism, and then we walked down that aisle on Palm Sunday morning, and the minister asked us a whole bunch of questions about what we've been studying about, and we better know the answers, because if we don't, we don't get to join the church back in those days, and this minister and I found out that I knew a lot about God. I knew a lot about God, but honey, it took the people in Alcoholics Anonymous to teach me to know God. And there is a world of difference. We didn't find the answer there. And as the song says, we moved on. But from this point on, honey, you will never hear anybody stand behind a podium and say, from this time on, things got better. That's just not so. Things were getting bad. And we referred to them at this time as as Willie's strange behavior because quite a few of the things I was doing were strange. Now, honey, I don't have to stand here and tell you and be before all the women alcoholics in this room and go by a blow by blow description of what happened to Willie as a human being. And as I say, I love you men, but there is nothing more humiliating, there's nothing more shameful and degrading than being a woman drunk. I know you men hurt, And I'm not taking from your pain. But have you ever seen a cartoon about a woman drunk? You men can get all boiled up. You can put a lampshade on your head and you can get up on the table and you can dance and you're funny as a crutch. But you let a woman try the same thing. The one word that's applied to a woman, drunk, is a word that I don't want ever applied to me again. The word pitiful. I don't have to go by blow by blow, but things got so bad that I knew I was going to lose this man that I had tried mighty hard to get and hold on to, and I knew I had to do something to make a move of some kind, but I didn't know what to do. And you're going to hear a lot about the miracles and the coincidences in this program and in our lives beautiful man in AA told me once and passed on, and I know a lot of you have heard it, but for the sake of those who haven't, he said, you know, Willie, a coincidence among us is a small miracle in which God wishes to remain anonymous. At this particular time, my husband is a very thorough man. Everything he does, he does very thoroughly. He flew an airplane for 22 years in two wars with people shooting at him, and he doesn't even have ingrown toenails. He is a very careful, methodical man. And when he reads something, he reads it. And one Sunday morning in Omaha, Nebraska, he was reading the newspaper and there was a tiny little article in there about Alcoholics Anonymous. And this man swears that that word alcoholic just jumped out at him. And he tore this little announcement out and it said if you want further information about Alcoholics Anonymous, call this number. And he brought it to me and tried to read it to me. Now, I didn't want any part of that, not any part of it. But he put this in his billfold, and he kept it. And when things got almost to the breaking point, that this man had had about all he could take, he called that number, and he talked to the gal at the intergroup there in Omaha, of course after she heard just a few things he had to say she knew she had a live one out there at the base and she said well will she talk to me and he said no I don't think so because right now she isn't even talking to me but she said I will do the only thing that I can for you I'll send you a copy of the big book and she did my man read that big book and closed it up And he handed it towards me and he said, you got a problem and you better solve it. And the answer is right here. One of the other coincidences that came up right about then, this was one big book. And it was all over my house. It was in the bedroom, it was in the bathroom, it was in the kitchen. Any place my man thought I might go, he put that big book. Because see, I didn't touch that sucker. I didn't want any part of it because it had a word on it I didn't like, and it wasn't anonymous. (laughs) That word alcoholic meant exactly what it means to a lot of people still today. Failure, lack of character, a complete washout of life, all the things that I did not want to be, and see i had gotten to this point honey that the big book describes i did not know the true from the false and i had become an expert rationalizer and excuse maker to myself and excuse the things that i did i had become a completely different person and I, I you know we form these patterns that we form and we don't let go of them right away first couple of years i was in AA, a man said to me said god willing." when, honey, are you gonna break this habit of making excuses for everything you do and everything that's happening to you? It's become a, a pattern and a habit in your life. When are you going to break it? He said, you remind me of this fellow that the police pulled out of a burning building, you know, and shook him around and said, George, we have told you not to smoke in bed. And old George standing there, staggering said, hell, the bed was on fire when I got in it. <laughs> And this is how good we get at it, don't we? All y'all know what I'm talking about. We have a ready-made excuse for everything. We have a rational answer for everything that we do. If he wouldn't have done that, I wouldn't have done this. If they wouldn't have done that, I wouldn't have done this. If I had eaten more, if I had eaten less, if I on and on, it's all described in that paragraph in the big book. Not all of it, because all of us can add to it. Because we tried every way in the world. This is the insanity, honey. This is the insanity we're talking about. But I, things got so bad that I decided to go to my first AA meeting there in Omaha. And my God, by this time, I was so phony. Such a completely bankrupt person. Not in every area of my life but a, a bankrupt human being as far as living the kind of life that i wanted to live a decent life with some human dignity it hadn't all been taken away from me yet and if i could have stopped at that point it would have been fine but i wanted to feel something i wanted to I went to that first AA meeting and I got all dressed up for you. And I sat there and I went home and I told my husband, I said, honey, that is the nicest bunch of folks I have met in a long time. But Lord, they got lots of problems. I said, those men have been in jails, they've been in the hospitals, they've been terrible the way they have their lives. They've lost their wives, they've lost their jobs.
1: Beautiful,
0: beautiful. See, I didn't look for the pain in these men's eyes. I didn't look for the heartbreak. I didn't look for the loss of control. I listened to the details about their trips to jail. I listened to the details about losing families and wives and, and their human dignity. I, I listened to the details, but I didn't look for that pain. And I found exactly what I was wanting to find. An elimination of me from you. Because I hadn't done any of those things. I I didn't hear when you said, if you keep messing with this flip, some of these things gonna happen to you, honey. I did to you the next four years what my teenagers sometimes do to me in my classroom. I heard what you said, but I did not listen. You know, I go in and I get all ready for my lecture, and I'll say, "Now on page sixty-four, we're gonna do so and so and so and so," and I'll get all through explaining what we're gonna do and pull down charts and everything else, and I'm all ready to go. An old boy in the back of the room say, "What page are we on?" I will say, "Didn't you hear me?" He say, "Yes, ma'am, but I wasn't listening." And I did that to you for the next four years. I heard all your stuff. And I heard all about what you had done and about your program and all of this. And I thought you needed it to rehabilitate yourself so you wouldn't go back to jail and hospital. And in all my arrogance and in all my not knowing the truth from the false about Willie and what had happened to her, and the fact that yes, I did still have my marriage. I did still have a job. I didn't look and I didn't listen for that pain. If you've never been in a drunk tank in Seattle, Washington, you've missed a real (laughs) treat. Because see, honey, the thing that I was so sure would never happen to me, that it happened to all these men, did. And I sat in that drunk tank all night and the humiliation and the degradation and the shame that I felt, I thought would literally kill me. And I swore to ex the God that I thought I knew so well that if I got out of that, I would never take a drink as long as I lived, And God, I meant it. And I think God understood that I meant it, just like he's understood when you have cried out to him. Honey, he's answering your prayers. You're here tonight, aren't you? Now, I stopped on the way home and got a bottle. And I was sincere with that prayer god if you'll just get me out of this i'll never take another drink i didn't understand that i could not keep that promise you can't solve a problem if you don't know what the matter is there is no way in science or any other way and i didn't understand the problem because i hadn't listened to you i heard you tell about what had happened in your life I'm, I'm thoroughly convinced that from that very first meeting in Omaha, Nebraska, that God took me by the hand and walked with me the rest of the way. He never let me really forget anything that you said. You were telling me how to stay sober. You were telling me how to put my life together. And even though I was rejecting everything that you said, God was sticking it in my pocket. Because he knew the day would come when he would have Willie on her knees where she could hear better. And that day came. Not all of a sudden, not with a blinding flash of light. There's an educational variety of recovery that takes a while. See, I was so intellectual when I came to you. I argued with everything those men said. I was of like the lion, you know. He found him a bull, and he killed him, and he ate his fill. And, and when he got through, he stood there, and he roared loud and long. And a hunter came along and shot him. And the moral of that story is, if you're full of bulls, keep your mouth shut.
1: <laughs>
0: oh, gosh. See, I didn't do this. Listen, honey, with your heart and your mind and your feelings. But I argued with everything you said. See, I, I, I told you men don't understand me. You don't understand what it is to be a woman alcoholic and then be in this position that I'm in. I live in this drinking world. I'm trying to live with this man that's continued to drink. Cause see, he had asked a bunch of alcoholics and ran to Illinois. But we're moving all this time, we're moving on. And he had asked them, would it help her to stay sober if I quit drinking? i won't kill that bunch of men if I ever run across them again. <laughs> I thought at one time I would. Cause they said, uh-uh. When she gets ready to quit, she'll quit. Won't make any difference whether you drink it or not. I'll kill them. But see, my man didn't stop drinking. And I would tell them loud and long at the meeting. You know, your wives—they—they they come in to AA with you. They—they they get into Al-Anon. They get their beautiful program going. They turn into butterflies and they—they they help you men in every way that you possibly can help you. They get all the booze out of the house. See, I had rationalized so much. I thought, well, now why hadn't this happened to a Baptist preacher's wife? Cause she don't want to drink anyhow. But. And I'd tell them, your wives cooperate with you, they go to their Al-Anon meetings, they share your program. And y'all just don't understand that I gotta go home tonight this man is sitting there drinking. Excuses, excuses. They had become such a part of my life that I walked right through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous with a suitcase in both hands full of them. Because see, this was the truth. You don't walk in an Al-Anon room and find it crowded with men, honey. There's a few men, God bless them. I have a lot of respect for them, but you're never going to find an overcrowded Al-Anon room with men. Because, see, our men are a little bit different. You take a woman sometime, maybe Shit, now, al don't get mad at me. <laughs> A woman sometimes be married to a drunk for 20 years and he'll die and she'll go out and marry another one. But that's just the woman in her. But a man won't stay married to a drunk woman very long. And honey, if you have that boyfriend out there, he ain't gonna stay with you very long either. He'll buy those drinks for you and he'll drink as much as he wants. And it's all right for you to have a little bit. I tell you what, a man doesn't hang around a drunk woman because we are a mess. I lecture out at the Houston Police Academy and I tell the boys there the difference in the way to arrest a woman drunk and a man drunk if they want to protect themselves.
1: <laughs>
0: and I've had a lot of those cadets to come back after they've made police officers and start doing the patrolling and throwing some of these women and in jail and say, we know what you mean now. A woman drunk, a man's not going to stick with her. See, I came in with all and I, I, I rode that old horse to death that he was still drinking. But I had been sober, if we want to use that word, or dry, for about a year. Now this was one of the longest stretches I had gone. We were stationed out in Seattle. And I had gone a year going to meetings and listening to your dumb stories and all of your stuff. And I had stayed dry away from alcohol, none in my body for a year. But I tell you, I wasn't about to be happy about it. And I wasn't going to to share all this joy and loving and sharing and caring for, with, for the birds. I sat there and, and did, honey what, sometimes you're gonna walk into an AA meeting and you're gonna see a couple of sore heads sitting there and I, you know, they may have been sober five, six, 10, 20 years and the newcomer walks in and they say, my, it's good to be sober. There's a lot of joy in being sober. <laughs> You're gonna enjoy it to the utmost. And they look like somebody just hit them in the face with a dead fish. You gonna run into that, huh? Just don't pay them any mind. Cause that's what I was doing. Wouldn't crack a smile. Keep it hair lift, everybody enjoyed it. and I didn't want all this loving and sharing and caring and all that junk. I was sober and that ought to be enough for the man that I had and for you. They loved me sober, but I don't know how. But I had that year of sobriety and God stepped into my life and gave me the most beautiful thing he's ever given me except for my sobriety. And that was a beautiful baby boy. I had been told that I would probably never, ever have children. We had been married 10 years. And God gave me this beautiful baby boy. I took this little boy and we were transferred down to Montgomery, Alabama to Maxwell Air Force Base. And God gave me people. They had been in all of these other places that I had been, but God had me on my knees. My life, was miserable, and here I had something that I had wanted for such a long time, this beautiful, beautiful baby. We got there to Montgomery, and I was still and carrying on about the fact that this man drank, and, honey, maybe your, your man's not going to quit drinking for you, but don't you lie to yourself and think you can't stay sober. If you want your man, you hold on to him. Let him do his thing, because the people in Montgomery, Alabama took me by the hand and walked with me the rest of the way. A the man there named Charlie said, you know, Willie, God, when are you going to get off of that old view you're riding about this man drinking in front of you? Said, you remind me of the story you know about the, we had a fella in AA that drove a garbage truck. And I, we asked him, you know, how do you go into, for a beer truck, excuse me, and how you go in and out of all these old taverns and, and you're delivering this beer and, and how can you keep from drinking the beer? And he said, if I drove a garbage truck, I wouldn't eat the garbage. And this was a very good little thing that God put in my pocket. He was telling me that just because my husband drank, that didn't have anything to do with my sobriety. Nothing. If I wanted my man and I wanted my sobriety, I could have them both. But I had to do a little work and I had to change my attitude a little bit. He gave me a beautiful gal named Rose. I lost Rose this past year. But Rose was the first sponsor I had ever had. And she's the only one I've ever had. And God bless her. She did for me through God, what I could not do for myself. She spoon-fed this program to me. I was still griping and moaning to her about his drinking. And I was moaning to him, understand, all this time too, and making his life miserable. And if you're doing that, forget it. So you're not gonna make him quit drinking, honey. All you're gonna do is drive him out the door still griping to him, and he'd come in, and he'd fix up his shaker of martinis, or he'd get out his cold beer, and and he'd sit there, and I could just see the tiredness just rolling off of him, and man, I would get out my Mary Martyr flag, and I would start waving it. How can you do this to me, I would say. I've been here with this baby all day long, and I'm so tired, and I get so nervous, and and you come in here and drink in front of me and these people, because you were still these people, these people in AA tell me that I can't drink and I can't take a pill and I get so nervous. And he looked right square at me and he said, hell, just be nervous. (laughs) That's one of the best pieces of advice that I ever got. Now he lived to regret that day So see, I have my nervous days now. I get up in the morning and announce this is my nervous day, and I intend to be nervous all day long. <laughs> and furthermore, I want to make everybody around me just as nervous as I possibly can.
1: <laughs>
0: have you ever heard of anybody shaking to death? I've never had to go to a slender bottle, I just shake an awful lot. And I went through a phase in my life that, you know, I would get so nervous, I could thread a sewing machine, and it was running. (laughs) But see, hon, there's nothing wrong with being nervous. If God didn't want you to be nervous, he wouldn't have made the mistake of giving you a nervous system. There's nothing wrong with it. Enjoy it. (laughs) The people in Alcoholics Anonymous kept telling me, Willie, just be, just be depressed. Isn't that the most depressing word you've ever heard? When I used to tell myself I'm depressed, God, I felt bad. For days on end, I felt bad. But see, the people in AA taught me that I didn't have to be depressed. I could just have a bad day once in a while. There wasn't anything wrong with that. If you never have a bad day, how you know you're gonna have a good day? You can have ups and downs. That's called living, hon. Living. And you're going to have good times and bad times and nervous times. Rose took me out to lunch one day. But see, I wanted wanted deep answers from these people. I didn't want all this trivia. I was deep. Y'all didn't understand how deep I was. (laughs) And I wanted all these deep answers. And you kept doing these things easy, does it? Live and let live. And that just wasn't profound enough for me. And I was serious about this thing of, you know, I I was serious about changing this man and changing the circumstances. He was a career officer. He intended to stay in the service. But I wanted to change all that. I wanted him to get me out. So I wouldn't have to be around all these drinkers. Now you don't have to change people and you don't have to change circumstances. When you hear people say that in meetings, believe them, all you have to do is work on your attitude. Rose took me out to lunch and she listened to my ache in a while and she said, darling, and she was born and raised in Montgomery, Alabama. And just that saying, darling, that took about 15 minutes. <laughs> darling, gonna get your sense of humor back. You take yourself so seriously with it. And that's how my life had become a very serious, serious thing. Because I was a white knuckle, sober alcoholic and alcoholic anonymous. And I was missing all the joy. And she said, for God's Honey, get your sense of humor back. And on the way home, I couldn't get rid of that. My sense of humor. Where had it gone? Because I had loved life. And I had enjoyed it. And I loved to have fun. But all of that was gone. And on the way home, that, that phrase kept going over and over in my mind. And I thought, Maybe I'll try. My husband doesn't like fried eggs. And even these normal drinkers, and I'll explain that in a minute, these normal drinkers get too much every once in a while that they don't feel so pretty good the next morning. So the next time he didn't feel so pretty good, I fried his eggs. (laughs) Just barely. (laughs) And when I put those suckers down, I shook them a little bit. And of course, see, the outside, they don't want to be one of us. You know, you, you so tell somebody you're an alcoholic and they'll explain to you why they're not. They don't want to be one of us. So God bless him, he'd sit there and eat those eggs. When he got used to that, I'd put a little green food coloring on him. And it began to be a little fun, and Willie began to laugh a little bit. See, honey, you can't just turn yourself around 180 degrees. Do it a little bit at a time. (laughs) My boy got up, and he came in one day, and he said, Mama Ricky has a pet, and I sure would like to have one. I promised to take care of it. And I said, well, sure, honey, good afternoon. Sure, honey, what would you like to have? And I meant what kind of a dog or what kind of a cat. He said, Mama Ricky has a snake. (laughs) And the old wheel started turning (laughs) Because, Sugar, once you get them in motion, once you get those wheels in motion, they'll just keep rolling. And the old wheel started turning. See, I told you, I'm a country girl, and I'm married to a city boy. And he's scared spitless of snakes, and I'm not. So I said, good, honey, but let's wait till Saturday to go get him. Because we had a party coming up at the club Saturday night. Saturday afternoon we went down to the pet shop and we got us a a long black king snake and we named him Jack on the way home. And I told my son, I said, now hun, we're going out to the club tonight. We're going to be busy and everything getting ready. So let's don't bother dad. Let me show it, let's show it to him in the morning. (laughs) So he took him on to his room and we didn't bother daddy with Jack helped that dude get drunk that night. Every time his glass got down a little bit, I said, here, honey, have a little drink. But see, even these normal drinkers, and there is such a thing, honey, as these normal drinkers. But we got home that night, and I helped pour that man in bed, and the next morning, I took old Jack in there and put him in that bedroom and shut that door. Now, all you young people sitting out there, you think you invented shrieking, you didn't. (laughs) You never saw a legal husband depart a bedroom quite so suddenly. he went out the back door, Woman, you are driving me crazy. (laughs) And I laughed all the way back to the bedroom with Jack. I found out, honey, that I didn't have to change this man because he is a perfectly normal drinker. He is a hard, two-fisted drinker, and that's all there is to it. But when I say normal, I'm talking about the real normal type drinking. He'll come home and he'll say, I'm going to have a couple of drinks or a couple of beers and then at 7.30 I'm going to eat. Well, he has a couple of drinks or a couple of beers or five or six beers or how many ever and at 7.30 here he comes and he walks in my kitchen with his glass or his beer bottle And if he isn't through, he comes over and he pours it down my sink. And I stand there and watch it go all the way down. I cry a lot at my house. (laughs) He sits down and eats his supper. Then he wants a bowl of ice cream or a piece of pie. And he eats that, and he'll watch a little television or read a little bit, and then he goes to bed, and he stays there. <laughs> now, doesn't that sound like fun? <laughs> but that's what the normal drinkers do. But every once in a while, their metabolism and their capacity isn't always the same, so just wait, Good just stand behind the door and wait till he gets in my boy got a love for the little motorcycles when they first came in the little cycles and I bought him this little 50 Honda and, and he took real good care of it he came on up to the 90 and then he came on up to the 100 and when he got about to that 350 I had ridden a lot with him on the back and I had ridden around a little bit shoot I went out and bought me one now have a big 650 Honda and my son and I tear all over the state of Texas on those Hondas and we have ourselves a ball sugar don't think that you are gonna do anything except quit drinking you don't have to quit doing anything else and you can start doing a whole bunch of things that you never even thought about doing sobriety has a beautiful gift for you honey and it's called living and you can do a whole bunch of it maybe you were lacking that third A that I was lacking. Maybe you're sitting there lacking that tonight. I had admitted I was an alcoholic and I had accepted the fact that I was an alcoholic, but I hadn't put that third A on there that was so vital, and that's when I started to live, when I learned not only to admit I was an alcoholic and accept the alcoholism, but to approve of it. It's all right it doesn't mean the end of your life it means the beginning this is a fantastic program it'll help you take all of the scattered pieces of yourself and put them back together again and then you'll start on a journey that you will love that doesn't mean you won't have bad times that doesn't mean you won't have trouble and grief and sorrow in your life like every other human being but you will have a set of tools that are not available to a lot of human beings walking around. You will have a set of tools to deal with these things with. And you will learn to love every morning that you wake up, no matter how, what kind of problems that you may have. And dear God, I hope I have problems for a long time. That means I'm alive. And that means that God thinks I'm capable of handling them. If I can't solve them, I live with them. And that's called growing. And I hope I keep on growing for a long time because I love life now, every single minute of it. And I'm gonna squeeze every bit of it out that I possibly can. And honey, it's there for you too. A lot of lay people, you know, as I go around talking sometimes to lawyers and judges and doctors and nurses and people that are studying us. <laughs> They'll say, you know, what is what is Alcoholics Anonymous? I don't know. I don't know. I think if we ever come up with a definition that we might lose it of what is Alcoholics Anonymous. It's one thing to you and you and you, and it's it's of it, it, it means the, the a way of life that's explained to us in the big book. But we take it on as a personal thing. And you can do with your life whatever you want to do. But I ran across something in an old grapevine, 60, 56, 57 grapevine. And I read it just the one time and I went home and wrote down what I could remember. It doesn't seek to define AA, but I think it's a beautiful, beautiful wrap-up of some of the things that it has given to each and every one of us that have sobriety. And it has a promise for you, honey. AA is a spirit. It cannot be touched, nor can it be completely understood. It's as wide as the world, and yet small enough to fit snugly into the hearts and the minds of man. It's brought light where only darkness dwelt. It's given hope to the hopeless and help to those who yearned in despair. It's nourished forgiveness in those who knew no pity. It's given strength to the weak and humility to the strong. It is spurred to higher goals those who strove for nothing. It's taught patience to the hurried and action to the lazy. To youth it's given vision and to the aged promise. To the lonely companions and to the restless, rest. To the sick, it's been a doctor. And to the dying, it has revived the desire to live. It has no judgment against the unteachable, nor has it praise for those who learn. To the outcast, it's been a family. And to the childless, it has given children. To the ignorant, wisdom. And to the wise, tolerance. It's given to all men that which is most precious. It's given a love of truth and love of life with enough left over to share with each other. Thank you for having me.